Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Welcome back, everyone. As you know, last episode, we spoke to Carolyn Trenda, a McGuire Woods benefits partner, and Don Setter, our employment specialist, on employment and benefits issues that arose during the pandemic. Today, we are releasing the second half of that conversation, where we look forward at what future or longer-lasting developments we may see stemming from response to the pandemic. That's good to know and appreciate your guidance for those that may be listening that are, are surprised or that feel like they missed a, missed a timeline. Going back to your point regarding telehealth, that does seem like it's going to have long-reaching effects. And Don, you described the regulations coming out of COVID so beautifully. It's kind of like growing and interweaving. It's this like tangled web of regulations and knots that are specific to certain subject matter areas that cross over into other subject matter areas. Besides telehealth, what do you think kind of rises from the ashes that is the the pandemic that we've experienced that the last 15-month period? What do you think has long-term reach or reflects the seeds, I guess, of some development in both benefits and employment issues for employee benefits and for maybe leave matters or other areas of employment law? That's a really interesting question, and I think it's something obviously a lot of employers are thinking about, but what comes top of mind is this notion of flexibility and how important that is to, I think, a lot of employees, but women with caretaking responsibilities in particular, for a lot of us, we've been making it work over COVID. And I think the idea of, at least for those employees who are working remotely, the idea of going back into a workspace five days a week isn't really palatable. We're sort of at the cusp of a generational shift, too, where some employees who are just entering the work sphere Money isn't as important and flexibility is more important. And I think you're seeing that, especially in the kind of the professional services sector, looking at ways to be more flexible with employees, but those employees with caregiving responsibilities in particular. I think law firms are a little bit of a good example in this. Accounting firms, I think, are similar in that from what I've seen anecdotally in that space, very few employers are saying, we're going to make people come back five days a week. And I think if you had told me that in January 2020, I would have laughed at you. No way. <laughs> but I think now that's something that's on a lot of people's minds. And so what are the challenges moving forward and having at least a partially remote workforce? And what does that look like? Is it two days a week? Is it three days a week? You're in the office or you're at home. And, and how do you deal with that on a more permanent basis? How do you accommodate employees? who want a little bit more flexibility. So I, I don't know that it's really an area necessary for legislation, but it's certainly at the top of employers' minds in terms of how their business is going to look moving forward. 
and what they're going to need to do to recruit talent, right? Because if one company who's a large employer is doing it and employees like that, it, it's certainly something that tends to filter its way down. So I think we're looking at a time that's not only kind of characterized by all of this change, but I think some of the changes are good, particularly for those employees who do have caregiving responsibilities, because I think flexibility is, is important to a lot of people. John, do you think that, I mean, you mentioned recruitment and retention and it being more an employer policy, employer decision, particularly in the service industries, than a legislative change. But do you think from a legislative perspective that there's going to be any movement on a federal leave policy beyond the FMLA? I think that there's been attempts that, you know, tax credits to try to incentivize employers to have voluntary, right, paid leave beyond the FMLA. But do you see any big movements towards either some sort of mandatory paid leave at a very base level, like making the FMLA? Yes, exactly, exactly. Because, you know, we noted a lot of the, the COVID stuff was voluntary still. What, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts there? I think that is an extremely interesting question, and a lot of it depends on the political winds in Washington. I mean, it's, it's something that the Biden administration has said is a priority and that paid family leave is a priority. Whether, given the era that we're living in, whether there's enough political capital to get a federal paid leave program in place, I think remains to be seen. And I had kind of mentioned this earlier, but there are paid leave requirements in different states, particularly on the coast, right? New York has one, California has one, and, you know, state-funded paid leave programs. But it's something that the federal government could look to to model a paid leave program. But, you know, in some respects, we've been talking about paid family leave for a really long time. I mean, even under the Trump administration, there were discussions about making paid family leave happen, and it just, it didn't happen. And so, while I hope that it gets done, it's just (laughs) looking at the long view of it, it just seems like it's something that will have to have a tremendous amount of political capital behind it to actually get it across the finish line. So it's definitely a to be determined right now, but we are seeing a lot of error, a lot of movement with respect to different state laws creating paid family leave programs. But it's no small feat. I mean, generally speaking, paid family leave programs are funded by employees, and it's you know it's not just employees who, who utilize that. It's the portion of the paycheck that is taken out and, and put you know to a government fund or. And this might even be in your area, Carolyn, you know, it's a self-administered fund, and then it's paid out that way. So definitely an area where there's lots of discussion, but we've been talking about it for at least 20 years now. It still hasn't yeah. happened. So. And I think, I mean, from my perspective, right, as outside counsel to employers and to benefit plans, one of the things that we always, it's a silver lining sometimes is the federal nature of ERISA, right? That you don't have to comply with a lot of the patchwork local laws on insurance, for example, if you have an ERISA-governed plan, unless you have a fully insured plan for for health and welfare. But a lot of the retirement rules, for example, are federal rules. So maybe for some of particularly the larger employers in the services industry, 
maybe federal leave becomes easier just simply because it's easier to administer than having to worry about a lot of these state and local programs that, as you, as you quite rightly noted, are, are popping up on the coast and in areas where a lot of the services industries have offices. That will be interesting to see if they still have large offices on the coast given the response to COVID. So who knows? That's totally right. And, you know, the interesting thing is the one thing I, I mean, I personally, as a labor and employment attorney who focuses their entire practice on compliance-related issues, would love to see a federal mandate that sort of swept up all the, the state and local laws. I don't foresee that happening as much as I personally would like it to happen because I think it would be a lot easier to keep on top of because you're always going to have states with California that are going to want to go on top of it. And, yep. you know, I just don't know that there's going to be the political capital to say, hey, we're going to we're going to have an ERISA-like structure. But, boy, would that be nice. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of employers <laughs> would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, right, there are a lot of employees that would agree with that. I think there are also employers that would disagree with that, especially if it's mandate, yep. right? So If it's mandate, yep. You never know, but from a knowledge perspective, it would make your life and my life a little bit smoother. We've been dealing with kind of like this structure of leave for 20 or plus years. And I just wonder if the pandemic has served as kind of like an acceleration of that in a way, because you had so many people working from home that typically wouldn't be working from home, right? And so it was like almost this kind of really strange laboratory to see what employers were coming up with in this context in like almost like a, you feel like almost like a glimpse into if this is the path that we go down, that more people are working from home, what does that look like? And not just the states being laboratories for that development of, of legislation, but also employers coming up with their own creative solutions. I guess I wonder if that has had an effect of accelerating kind of where we go from here and whether that, you know, as you say, is, is maybe employee-driven and thereby employer-driven to figure out solutions for their employees, or if that's going to come from some, some overarching kind of legislative regime. It's kind of an incredible experiment, unintentional, nobody wanted it experiment <laughs> we can now look back on in part we're still going through in part and see what comes out of it so that's that's really interesting putting leave aside for a moment um, although we may be coming back to it with this question what do you think the future holds in terms of more progressive benefit programs whether that's other leave programs caretaking I know some larger employers offer more progressive benefits related to fertility treatments, adoption, egg freezing, adoption assistance. Lots of different programs are out there with some employers, but I'm wondering what you think the future holds in terms of some of those programs. I can certainly come in from the benefits perspective. As you noted, Kelsey, a lot of the more progressive benefit plan designs are at larger employers and certainly in larger service provider industries. And those are plans where you see, particularly in the legal field and financial services, probably I would include private equity in that grouping. You see adoption reimbursement. You see more paid time off, whether it is 
through a cafeteria plan or just a more generous employer policy. You see dependent care flexible spending accounts. You see high deductible health plans with health savings account that has a significant what we call seed or employer contribution to it. On the retirement plan side, which we haven't talked about at all, really, we've been focused on the welfare plan side, but on the retirement plan side, we're even seeing certain retirement plans that are designed potentially to cover or to provide an employer match if the employee pays down their student loan debt. So there's lots of just kind of innovative things. There always are innovative things in both the health plan and retirement plan area. But many of the innovations happen in certain industries and in larger employers because they just have the employee base that demands it or requests it, and they have the personnel in the human resources and benefits department that can dedicate themselves to learning about them and to talking to outside counsel about them and they have maybe the access to either lobbying groups or congressional representatives that can help them with these things. But a lot of these things are embedded in, as I noted earlier, in the tax code. For example, adoption reimbursement is in Section 137 of the tax code. Paid time off is often provided through a cafeteria plan, which is also part of the tax code. A lot of these are, because they're complex and complicated and are basically tax incentives, are often done at the larger employers and at employers in service industries or or desk-based employers, right? They're not being done as often at manufacturing sites or employers that have a more temporary or mobile employee base. I don't know, Don, if if you see that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, depending on the, the employee base, it, it, it is. It can be very different because I think the needs differ. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Since a lot of this is kind of driven by employees and employee needs, as John just said, as Carolyn, you had mentioned, is this something that you see shifting more as women take more leadership roles in their organizations? or are more represented in the ring? I think so. I think as, you know, women have always been really well represented in human resources and in the benefits portion of employers. It tends to be an area where there is very good representation of women. And so I think having folks in those positions have them sensitive and aware of what I think, Kelsey, you've called progressive benefit structures, which I think is an an interesting way of of saying it, but it it probably is progressive benefit structures. You know, we see things in, you know, health plan spaces certainly moving from focusing exclusively on what may have been considered conditions that male executives see, like heart disease and, and heart conditions, to You know, also in in the late 90s, early 2000s, we saw, you know, the Women's Cancer and Reproductive Rights Act that requires, you know, health plans to more generously cover breast cancer treatments and things. So you, you start to see over time a little bit more of an equilibrium coming out. 
we'll see how that progresses. Right now, there's, as I think some folks are aware, a big push to cover both mental health on a, a greater level. There is a mental health parity statute that requires plans that provide mental health services to offer them on parity with medical and surgical services. There's been more teeth recently put into that statute. There's also been a lot of coverage of more equal treatment or more generous treatment of transgendered services under health plans. And we'll see what that comes comes to be, both in kind of the fully insured context, which is you know, mandated by state insurers and, you know, the self-insured context where, again, employers, uh, you know, choose and design plans with the assistance of brokers and third-party administrators. So we'll see what, we'll see what happens there, but those are two areas where there's certainly lots of activity, you know, because sometimes women are now the decision makers in those areas. They may be more attuned to serving populations that maybe hadn't been as represented previously. Karen, I think you bring up a really great point of we have to bring people at the table about how that might impact the types of benefits or the flexibilities that an employer is willing to engage and develop and provide. So I guess that leads me into my Next question, which is, what are some of the barriers we have to getting people to those leadership roles, particularly as women? And how do you think we best address those challenges? I know it's a very easy and short question to answer. Some of the barriers to female leadership, you know, I think caregiving has historically been something that makes it really difficult. I think it's difficult to be a full-time caregiver, whether it's at the beginning of your career or whether you have elderly parents. I mean, there are just certain time dictates that make it challenging to be available 24-7, and sometimes that's what's needed to, to move ahead. But I think equally important is making sure that, you know, women coming up through the ranks have the confidence they need to push forward. I mean, certainly in, in my career, sort of one thing I've seen, and maybe it, it, in some respects is a little bit of a generational issue, but a lot of women and women leaders, you know, sort of sidestepping or stepping back and not commanding the floor the same way male peers do. And it, while I do think some of that's changing, I still think that there's, there's a room for growth there. Yeah, I would I would 100% agree with that, Don. I think to your first part of your answer, I think there's something a little bit almost cultural about, and in many cultures, about women taking the primary caregiving role of children, of parents, just of, of households, right? And that it's the girl's job or the woman's job to coordinate down to, you know, gifting for Mother's Day. You know, it's, it's, you know, if there's a girl in the family, it's, you know, the girl is taking care of Mother's Day for mom, right? So, and that takes time and that takes energy. And so I think that sometimes that can be a barrier when you're looking at industries that have 24-7 job requirements. And I also agree with your second point. I mean, I, I tell folks this all the time. It took me a long time 
in this job to realize that just doing my job really well was not going to be good enough. I also had to actually talk about doing my job really well to other people and have the confidence to tell other people that I know my practice area beyond just talking to my clients, but to talk to other people and to be a little bit of a cheerleader for yourself. Because I think for a lot of women, that doesn't come naturally. There are a lot of women who work hard and when they put their head down and work hard, especially because in their entire lives, when they put down their head down and worked hard, good things came to them. They got good grades. They got recognized. But in certain industries, and the legal industry is definitely one of them, you don't have to do just that. You also have to, in a way, be a shelf promoter. And that is not always an easy personality trait to acquire. I think that's definitely true. I think it's it's hard to learn. It doesn't always come naturally to self-promote because you feel like it might come off pompous or arrogant in some way, even though, you know, you're just stating a fact. And you find yourself trying to soften what you're saying. And when you soften it, you take away some of the impact of what what really is at the heart of the matter, and that's that you can do your job well, that you know what you're talking about, that you have expertise in this field. And I think that's very true. I do think that that is something that women in particular can struggle with sometimes. I think it's a very cultural thing. I think that I hope that that is something that's changing, and I certainly, I think it is as well. Along those lines, what character traits other than learning to self-promote do you feel have benefited you and your success as leaders? For me, I think the bedrock is hard work. And on top of that, learning to be a little bit more confident in in what I'm doing and and like Carolyn said, being able to self-promote. And I think the one thing I would add And that, you know, I think a lot of us struggle with, I struggle with it, you know, working to move past it, but this whole notion of being a people pleaser and wanting everybody to like you, that's something that's definitely a work in progress for me because not everybody is going to like you. And I think not worrying about what other people are thinking and trying to keep everybody happy, but just really keeping your eyes on what you need to do and not concerning yourself so much with what other people think is really important. I definitely agree with that. I think that the question, what character traits do you feel you have have benefited in your success? I think it goes without saying my contributions to this podcast have probably reflected the general nature that I am a nerd 100%. I love reading arcane laws, but I think the character trait that's helped me the most is the ability to take what is very complicated and try as hard as I can to make it understandable to my clients, to the general public, to anyone who wants to listen to me babble on about a health plan policy or retirement plan policy, taking the complicated and making it usable, I think is the trait that I have tried to better repeatedly in my career, and I think it's hopefully the thing that makes me a good lawyer. 
that's a really great point. And uh, it's very helpful, I will say, from a corporate associate standpoint to the corporate associates on your deals. <laughs> because we're relying on so many different experts and running around very quickly behind the scenes to try to make everything go smoothly, as we all are. But it's just when you get one of those short and concise emails on something that you know is much more complicated, but someone's distilled it down. I mean, I think everyone appreciates that, but it, particularly in the deal context, that is so invaluable. And you both do that very well. And I really, I know from my experience working with you that I really appreciate that on my end. And I can attest to that for both of you, that that's a character trait that you both possess. It's a moment, though, Kelsey, where I do have to say, I feel like I need to shout through the telephone. Like, you need to know the why. Like, I need to explain. And, and there are moments where, particularly if it's if we're dealing with kind of post-close issues, and I'm sure Don feels the same way, that there are moments of like, no, you don't need the, the short answer. You need the long answer. And I'm going to tell you why you need the long answer, because there's risk that you have to kind of raise that red flag for the client. But, you know, figuring out when you can provide the short answer and when you actually have to need to, or you need to raise that red flag, that is something that, you know, you have to develop. And it's, you know, judgment. The character trait is judgment, right? Do you have judgment? And can you execute it properly? I know Dawn does because she, she emails me only exclusively hot topics. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm glad that the corporate folks feel that we've got that too. And then that's the other side of things that is much appreciated on our, on our side of the deal is when we receive an email that is a red flag and it's very recognizable as a red flag, and highlighted and um, usually leads to a client call uh, regarding something or another going on at the target. But those are also equally uh, invaluable. But yes, thank you. Thank you both for that. And I think that leads us into our signature question, which is what advice would you give your younger, say, 22-year-old self as you're just starting out, if you could give yourself any advice? Well, that's a good one. Um, I guess I would say I would tell myself to trust myself, trust your instincts, be confident, you know, in, in what you say and, and the direction you take. Because I think, I think confidence from what I've seen, the perspective where I'm at is sort of the linchpin to everything else. Once you're confident in yourself, a lot of the other things fall in place. I think that's a really good response. I would also say confidence, but because my 22-year-old self is not very confident. I would also tell my 22-year-old self to become comfortable with the fact that you are not going to know everything. There is no point in time in your career, at least the first 20 years of it, where you are going to know all the answers. You are still going to have to learn things. The law is going to develop. You are going to constantly have to be reading and rereading and understanding. So there is no moment in time where it crystallizes and you know everything. And the more humility you approach your job with in terms of not knowing every answer, not knowing every client, and just continuing to learn and to just be comfortable with that, it's going to be okay. I think both of your answers really go hand in hand and are equally important to success. Knowing what you know and being confident in yourself 
knowing when you need to ask more questions are equally important. I really appreciate that when a junior associate has a question, and I also really appreciate when a partner pauses a conversation with a client and says we'll follow up with them. Carolyn mentioned previously what a huge role judgment plays in the short versus the long answer to a client question. That's something that comes in time with the experience that you both have, and as you both suggested, is critically important. Those are great takeaways and advice for our younger selves. Don and Carolyn, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a great conversation. I'd ask anyone listening that has further questions regarding benefits matters to reach out directly to Carolyn. If you have questions related to employment matters, feel free to reach out to Dawn. Dawn and Carolyn, thank you so much again for joining us today. It's It's been definitely enlightening, and I think we could probably make this into multiple episodes I, <laughs> on both of your subject matter areas. I appreciate your insight and lending your time to us. Yes, thank you, Kelsey. It was an absolute pleasure. Yes, Kelsey, thank you very much for inviting me. It was wonderful to participate in this podcast. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you.